This week, the city of Bloomington found lead in the soil at one of the former locations of a water tank, likely caused from lead-based paint sandblasted off the exterior of the old tank. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and on this week's Noon Edition, we'll be discussing lead poisoning, which has been in the national spotlight after Flint, Michigan, and has Hoosiers wondering if their communities are vulnerable to lead contamination, justifiably so. For children, lead poisoning is irreversibly devastating for those affected and permanently stunts cognitive development. Will this impact city residents? How can Hoosiers be certain to avoid lead contamination? All of that and more after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And today we're going to talk about well-publicized issues involving lead contamination throughout the state and uh, beyond the state's borders. We have three guests, two in the studio and one joining us by phone. Jim Barnes is a professor with IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs and a longtime uh, observer of the EPA and all sorts of things that have to do with, with environmental um, government. Indra Frank is joining us by phone. She's the Environmental Health Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. Council, I'm sorry. And Nick Jansen is here in the studio. He is an energy and environmental reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting based in Fort Wayne. So you can join us on the program at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome. Glad to have everybody here with us. Jim Barnes, welcome back. Nice to be back. Yeah. So how long have you been uh, sort of following lead issues in the environment? Well, lead was uh, somewhat prominent during the time I was deputy administrator at EPA between 85 and 88. And that's the period we really started working on the lead and drinking water uh, issue. So it's been beginning around then time. and right. continuing since. Right. So uh, this has really popped up in Bloomington's, uh, Bloomington's, I guess, knowledge this week um, because some lead has been found, I guess it was last week, Saturdays when we, the news release went out, uh, around an old water tank uh, that had been sandblasted and probably the lead paint had gotten into the, the soil. And I know um, that's you know an issue. How, how concerned uh, should we be about that? I'm going to ask Indra Frank, um, how, how concerned should we be about lead being found in soil here in Bloomington? Well, lead in soil can definitely uh, find its way into the human body and, and cause lead poisoning. That's That's been demonstrated. Um, but that's only going to be true for people who are interacting with that soil in some way or walking on it and tracking it into their homes. Okay. We, 
So you have to directly touch it. I know that's something that's that's come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The most common way that soil um, uh, can produce lead poisoning is that it's it accidentally gets into food or on people's hands, and then and then they're uh, eating, holding the the food. Um, so it, also, it can get tracked into homes, um, for instance, on your shoes or on your pet's feet. And then it's part of the dust in the home that can settle on dishes or on food. Well, I I should say we invited a representative from the city of Bloomington to come on the program, but we couldn't get one who was available at this time. Um, And also, uh, J.D. Gray, uh, one of the reporters here at WFIU, talked to some residents of the area of Bloomington where this lead uh, was found in the soil. So we're going to play a clip from J.D.'s interview right now. Yeah, I want to find out as much as I can because this is worrisome, especially to the children that are being diagnosed with autism every day. And the problem is probably right up underneath our nose and we don't even know it. That was Crystal Ridgeway, who's a, a resident out in that area. So uh, let's see. Could, who wants to talk about the health effects a little bit more of, of what happens? I mean, she mentioned autism. Is that uh, something that, that has been proven I'm not aware of any uh, demonstrated connection between uh, exposure to lead and autism. I mean, I think the, the uh, certainly there have been a number of studies of whether vaccines contribute to that, and I think the and it may com- come back as a, as an uh, issue. But I mean, le- lead is a substance that people have known for I don't know thousands of years that it's something you don't want to. Uh, sprinkle on your cereal in the morning mm-hmm. because it, it has a variety of effects and particularly can be damaging to uh, young children. I mean, if you've got lead in your drinking water and you're using it to mix the uh, formula for your baby, baby's very susceptible to uh, exposure to lead. If a young child chews on the windowsill that had, had lead uh, uh, paint, it's another problem. I mean, one of the things that didn't get mentioned by your uh, uh, Andrea was that uh, up until uh, the mid-1980s, we, we put a lot of lead in gasoline as an anti-NOx inhibitor. So we were doing something that wasn't too smart, putting it in the air we breathed, but then that settled out so that people that live along in uh, housing that may be located near highways and so on may have find lead in their soil from that, the lead paint that got scraped off their home may be there. Nick, in your uh, reporting, what are some of the, the issues you've heard about in terms of um, health care issues? Well, uh, I mean, lead, lead can you know negatively impact health in a lot of different ways. And the problem that people run into a lot is that they'll get their blood tested for lead and finally have elevated lead levels. And they'll also have you know certain ailments already but it's really difficult in real life to establish you know causation between lead poisoning and a specific you know ailment someone has in a laboratory we know lead is harmful and we know it does certain things but um you know it it can be difficult to tease that out from other environmental factors or other genetic factors clearly it can cause uh, oh yeah Um, sure what we know very solidly from decades of data is that lead is toxic to the nervous system. That's something Jim just alluded to, and especially the developing nervous system. So while the, while the child is developing in the womb or for young children, during that, that development of the nervous system, lead is, is very toxic. And unfortunately, once it has damaged 
part of the brain, a part of the nervous system, that damage can't be undone. So it, it's permanent. So what we see in children who were affected during pregnancy or as young children is that they will have a, light, a lower IQ and they'll be at increased risk for behavioral problems. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I think, you know, we're, we're not here to try to scare anybody. We want to make sure and get the, the best information out that we can. But it is a fact that, that it's very concerning for people who live in these areas. And we're going to play another clip from Crystal Ridgeway, who lives out by that water tank. If it's going down into the water drains, it's going where else, where there's population of animals and fish. And, well, we all know where the water goes to goes in from one water to the next water. So you know the lead is being flushed into wherever. But I also, isn't lead like con contagious, like in airborne? I think we should just answer that question and explain the differences between lead and soil and air and so, um, water. Jim, can you do well, that? Well, I mean, l l certainly uh, small lead particles that have settled out on the uh, uh, ground that may become airborne and and, you, and uh, would be uh, inhaled would be be problematic. So that that's one uh, one route. I'm not sure that lead moves rapidly through the soil. I mean, if it's embedded in the soil, unless uh, you've got a solvent or something, you're, I don't. I'm not sure that there's a high likelihood that it's going to move through the through the uh, uh, soil, but. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding as well. It tends to bind to the soil particles and, and not move. Well, I think we're in the very beginning stages of, of knowing whether it's a, a serious issue in Bloomington, just how serious it might be here. But I think there are other examples in the state of very serious issues that we can point to East Chicago, for example. And, and Nick, I know you've been following that, and there was some movement last week with a, an executive order from the, the governor on that, as I understand it. Can you explain what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So let me back up a little bit first. Um, I mean, the lead contamination in East Chicago has been present for decades. And in 2009, it was named a Superfund site. So the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, listed it as uh, an area to be cleaned up by them. Uh, last year, in 2016, around May, uh, the city says they were you know, informed of just how bad the contamination was there. And they announced um, a housing complex. People would have to move out, and the complex was going to be demolished. Uh, last week, uh, Governor Holcomb issued an emergency declaration that did a few different things, but mostly it's aimed at helping the uh, 100 or so families left in the West Calumet housing complex find a new place to live. And uh, I would just add, um, it's it'll be important to see what happens after this emergency declaration ends. It was issued last week. It's temporary for 30 days. Uh, it'll we should pay close attention to if there's any families still living there after the declaration ends, because by March 31st, the city said they'll involuntarily relocate residents who haven't found a place to live yet. How many people were affected in in that uh, situation up there? And that the, and the particular housing area. So in the housing complex, there was about 1,000 residents, around 300 families, and uh, the Superfund site as a whole covers about 3,000 residents. It's divided into three zones. One of them's the housing complex, and then the other two zones are you know, single-family residential 
homes. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand sort of the time frame in which people have to act? When like when do you notify residents during this? Because I know that's been this this issue among people who live there. But in two thousand nine, did people? No, know? I mean actually, th this issue d date, as Nick said, it has has its antecedent back to from between about mid nineteen oh six or something like that, and nineteen what seventy five or something like that when there were leads and other. Uh, metal smelters there. In the mid-1980s, the, the state was looking at that site it, it, to deal with it under what a, a, a law called RICRA, which deals with, with haz management of, of hazardous waste. And that went on for about 10 years before EPA then got actively involved and talked about listing it as a Superfund site. The uh, U.S. Well, US Steel or whoever whoever owned the the uh, remnants of the smelter at that point resisted it. So this is an issue where you've had people living in that area in those conditions, certainly for, for the last uh, 30 or 40 uh, years, many of them known to, unknown, with, unaware of the, of the problems. The community built a school in this area. They constructed the, the public housing and so on in this area. So, uh, I mean, I, I just find it inexplicable that at this late point, I mean, we, we certainly we need to get the people out of there, but, but there has been the authority on the part of EPA to, to relocate people out of areas where there are significant problems related to Superfund sites. So I guess that's, that's my question, though, is like if all this was going on behind the scenes that they were doing all this testing, when, when are we supposed to be telling people that this is happening? Well, the from the newspaper clippings I've read, the agencies say, well, we were we did hold some public hearings and we put out some public notices. I mean, but at the same time, the question is, are the people that are living in those areas in those conditions the ones that are going to be reading the newspapers or going to have the time to go to the public meetings and in, in in some other uh, uh, community? And it seems to me it it, it called out for a, for a much more direct one on one, being people going kind of door-to-door while -door, well, talking to, to uh, residents, helping them get their children uh, tested, identifying things they could do for, to the extent drinking water, lead drinking water is a problem up there, getting your drinking water tested to see whether the, the uh, plumbing in your housing, in your, your home may be contributing to that problem. So there are a lot of things that could have been out there that could have helped people, but it seemed like the delivery system yeah, I mean, the, the EPA has always said, you know, they've notified people properly and in a timely manner. When I talk to residents, some of them will say, you know, in the same room talking to each other, they'll say, oh, yeah, I saw that notification. And another will say, no, I never saw, you know, whether it was a flyer or something like that. Um, you know, I think ultimately it kind of become, and to be fair to the EPA, when um, activity on this really started to ramp up last fall, they... Um, moved into the the elementary school that had to be abandoned and relocated. And they moved in there and kind of turned that into like a mobile command center where residents could go and get information. Um, you know, ultimately, I think it's a question of not of whether e EPA was notifying people properly and following the law, because by their, by all accounts, they were. But it's a question of if 
you know, the law is really at a place where people are actually going to be notified and actually get that information, like Jim was saying. And I think there's a little bit of a contrast to what happened in Bloomington a few years ago when we had the uh, PCB sites. I mean, EPA set up an office on the in the near the sound square had a person located here there were a lot of uh, public meetings so there are a lot of efforts to communicate directly with the residents that were going to be affected around yeah it's interesting and of course bloomington's kind of a transient community and you know jim and i know it but and sarah probably knows it but we we have you know, a lot of people that probably don't realize there are several Superfund sites right here in Monroe County and in Owen County right next door after the PCB contamination issues of the, well, it started out in the 50s and uh, the, the, a lot of the hearings and a lot of the, the solutions were in the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So. It's, these, these people in East Chicago who were living on this property that was being lead tested, and I mean, their homes were built. After, on top of a lead, a formal place that lead industrial site, would they not have known that? I mean, yeah, I mean, is uh, there disclosure rules or? As far as I understand it, there is supposed to be disclosure rules when you're, you know, getting a mortgage, or certainly when you're moving into public housing. Um, you know, the public housing complex was built in the '70s on top of, you know, a former lead smelter. So even if you know, public officials especially would have known that. And, you know, I can't speak to why, but for whatever reason made the decision to build it there anyway. Uh, The residential neighborhoods, you know, those homes have been around for decades and decades. And, you know, people used to live in that neighborhood and go work in the factory. And so uh, even if the home wasn't built on top of former lead smelter, it was definitely within sort of that radius of where they would have been coming in contact with emissions from those factories. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Indra, I'm going to ask you this uh, question first and see, uh, hopefully you'll have the answer. What is the most economical way to test the water in your home for lead? That something? Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, some of the water utilities in Indiana um, are offering now to do that for their customers. Um, and in some counties, the public health department um, has offered uh, lead testing for, for home water samples. Um, you do have to make sure that you're doing the, the sampling correctly. There are, are specific instructions for, for how to test for that. Okay, so uh, to our caller, Laurel, uh, go to your the county health department and, and your utilities. So I'm wondering, do we have the science to actually remove lead when we discover it? I guess I'm looking at East Chicago. Is it just a matter of funding to actually remove it then, or what's the issue? Well, typically where the, where the lead's in the soil, what you do is you just pick up lots of uh, soil and take it off and ideally bury it in a... Uh, uh, place where you've got a, a plastic liner under it and you, you put a cap over the top of it and that that's get, essentially gets rid of the problem. So you, as you're starting to remove the lead, you keep testing until you, you're no longer finding uh, uh, lead levels that exceed what is the, your trigger of concern. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it. I think it largely does come down to funding. I mean, I know one of the reasons why we didn't see sampling and cleanup work happen so long in East Chicago is because the EPA was negotiating with uh, DuPont and Atlantic Richfield, to which you know, through acquisitions and business dealings, eventually kind of became responsible for funding the cleanup. And their focus at that time was on the, the, the site where the smelters had been located and not so much in the, the surrounding uh, areas. I think it was, that was, the testing there was kind of late to the, to the party. Yeah. So Indra Frank is with us. She's the Environmental Health Director from Hoosier Environmental Council. And Indra, so on the list of the things that you keep track of in the state, I mean, where is lead contamination on that list? And are there other places other than East Chicago and, you know, Bloomington now that, that you, where you've seen significant problems? Yeah, there, there have been problems in other sites. And the sites that have had lead smelters or foundries in the past um, – tend to leave behind heavy lead contamination in the soil, and we, we have a number of those around the state. So are, are the uh, solutions the same as, as what uh, Jim was talking about, somehow uh, removing the soils and, and putting them into a, a secure landfill? Right, yeah, that, that is the standard treatment for lower levels of lead, for instance, around a house where maybe lead paint came off the side of the house and whatnot. Um, Instead of removing soil, another option can be to lay down clean soil on top of it and plant it with vegetation, and that can hold the, the lead-contaminated soil in a location where people aren't exposed to it. As long as the, uh, you're not planting uh, tomatoes or garden vegetables that you're going to eat. But no, you're, you're quite right. You'd like to get it, get it, get it covered up. I know the situation in Flint had to do with water. Here, it's soil. The CDC directed what, like 170-some million or something to Flint. Is, is that because when it's in the water, it's a worse situation, or what's the rationale? Yeah, I mean, it's, and Indra might be able to speak to this a little more, but as I understand it, it's much easier for humans to ingest lead when it's in water than it's when it's in soil because you're, you know, drinking with it or cooking with it or bathing with it. Yeah, exactly. The exposure pathway is, is much more direct. Okay. We have a phone call, uh, so we're going to go to uh, Victor from Indianapolis is on the line. Victor? Hi. Hi. Go There's ahead. There's a huge unaddressed problem in Bloomington in terms of the rental stock. You mentioned transient uh, population in Bloomington, but mm -hmm. many of the homes in Bloomington uh, have lead-based paint, and many of these are rentals. There are substantial fines for contractors if contractors don't use proper remediating uh, uh, techniques. On the other hand, if it is an owner and hires someone to work inside the property, there is nothing, either at the EPA level, the county level, or the city level, and that owner can expose people uh, workers to lead, and literally, uh, you can't even get the county or the city to come out and take a look. And I know this personally because I helped a guy out on a property right across from the uh, county building over on uh, Henderson, and uh, 
the owner wanted the ceiling busted out and wasn't tested. Literally dust throughout this whole little house. And I can't imagine uh, how dangerous that would be for a family. And again, could get nothing from EPA, from the county, or from code enforcement because it's an owner. So you've got this big unaddressed hole, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, hey, Victor, thanks for calling. We appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. So what are the obligations for for a landowner or a, or a homeowner in that place? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with them in, in Indiana. I do know in Massachusetts when I purchased a piece of a property, I had to have the, uh, a, uh, the house tested for a lead and got a report. And the expectation was that that was going to have to be uh, attended to uh, as part of then being able to get it financed and so on. So, I think Victor's problem would be, or his issue is more for landlords, because yeah. if somebody just you know, moves in every, every fall into a place and there, there's lead contamination there, you don't, don't yeah. really know. And I don't. This really isn't an EPA. This isn't an issue for uh, EPA. I mean, yeah. to some extent, uh, uh, HUD has been involved in it, but it's primarily local. I mean, it's what what well, what. Actually, if if I could, the the true. EPA passed a rule several years ago called the uh, lead renovation and and repainting rule or, or something to that effect. Um, that basically states that if you're renovating more than just a couple of square feet of painted surface that that has lead on it you have to use lead safe work practices so even for a private homeowner i believe that requirement uh, pertains and if they hire a contractor they need to make sure that they've hired a contractor um, who is certified for lead safe work practices and this applies victor raised a very important issue um lead paint is still with us um it was banned from use in residences in 1978 but we still have lots and lots of housing that's older than 1978 so if you're renovating a home built before 1978 you need to uh, test for lead paint and if it's there uh, make sure that your contractor is working le- using lead safe word work practices all right we're gonna have to take a short break we're uh, talking about lead contamination throughout the state uh, and in various places uh, that we all know about. If you uh, want to join the conversation, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We have three guests with us, two in the studio, Jim Barnes, uh, professor of IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Nick Jansen, an energy and environmental reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. And joining us by phone is uh, Indra Frank, the Environmental Health Director for the Hoosier Environmental Council. You can join us on the program at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So while we were on the break, we started talking about um, Mr. Pruitt, Scott Pruitt, is that? Yeah, Scott yep. Pruitt, who's uh, the EPA nominee under President Trump. And uh, he was up to, they, we thought that he was going to be, be confirmed, confirmed today. today. All right. It looked like it was maybe going to be 52 to 48, I think, uh, was what the, all the speculation was. Uh, but we have uh, Jim Barnes here with us, and Jim's got quite a history with the EPA, so we, we don't want to uh, <clears throat> we, we don't want to let him out of here without talking about the EPA and uh, Mr. Pruitt. And um, the, we actually had a question from, from Bob in Bloomington about Mr. Pruitt's um, uh, issue or his his viewpoints on lead issues. So, Jim, you were, you went to the EPA with Bill Ruckel's house in 1970. That's when EPA was set up. That's mm-hmm. correct. Right, and then you were back in '83. Went back in '83, and what, what's happening now is kind of deja vu all over again. As you, you, our friend Yogi Berra used to uh, uh, comment that the the folks that were appointed to EPA initially in, in the early days of the Reagan administration had a very kind of anti-environment bent and got into some significant uh, difficulty and ultimately some of them then were charged criminally and others had to resign and Bill Ruckel's house was asked to come back. So, so we don't want to get uh, you know, totally political if you can avoid it, but uh, your point of view on um, Mr. Pruitt? Well. I- I, I guess my view is that, that, that somebody that, that is put in charge of an agency that has been given <clears throat> responsibilities by uh, Congress, it should be somebody that's generally in sympathy with the aims of that uh, agency, which are largely to protect public health. I mean, I, I would acknowledge that we need to have a fair bit of room to argue over what's the best route to, to uh, protecting the public, what are the things we most be uh, ought, to, ought to be most concerned about, but that we generally ought to keep in mind that that it's the children and the people out there that we're trying to look out for. I, I think the caller was wondering if, if he had a history dealing with lead or what we might expect, how we might expect him to address the lead issue. I don't have any insight there. I mean, most of the, the reports have been with respect to the lawsuits that he's filed against EPA, most of them related to energy uh, issues and uh, in opposition to things that the current uh, EPA was doing relative to climate change, coal-fired power plants, and so on. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know if he's had any experience with lead. He was the um, attorney general of Oklahoma, and yeah, as Jim said, sued was part of several lawsuits against the EPA. Um, Notably, the clean power plan, um, the mercury toxic rule, um, mostly dealing with you know emissions rules and energy rules. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Michael from Bloomington. Michael. Oh, uh, I was just wondering if anybody there is passing along to the public 
But as you said, uh, Blood was a band in 1978. My father at the time was a painting and plating engineer, so I was quite in touch as the changeover happened. It happened for painted furniture and other things sooner. I just wanted to pass along that really lead paint before 1978 is pretty much in all of the painting that was done. It was the only, basically, pigment used in white paints. All those pretty old farmhouses painted white that you see had lead, lead paint all over them. So it's not going to be a unique problem. There are probably pockets of it where paint was scraped off of buildings or old wood was burned, scattered around. But, you know, I just wanted to pass along that this, this isn't a unique problem to any old building in Bloomington. You would probably find some trace of lead in the soil around it, so it's going to be very much a matter of concentration. Anyway, I just sort of wanted to make everybody aware, if you aren't, that if you're talking about old buildings, lead is everywhere, but it's going to be situation by situation how high the concentration is. And, you know, I'd love to hear your comments on how everywhere lead is around old buildings. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with lead. You know, the U.S. really does have a lead problem. It's terrible for humans, but it's incredibly useful industrially. I mean, there's lead drinking water pipes that got put in the ground 100 years ago that still function, you know, the way they were designed to be function. Lead paint lasts a long time. You know, like Jim was saying earlier, we put lead in gasoline for a reason because it, you know, did things we wanted it to do. And then we find out just how bad it is health-wise. I mean, I think, you know, and like the caller was saying, it is a problem everywhere, especially in older cities. Now it's becoming an issue of, you know, what will be the policy response and what exactly will it take? And I mean, to a certain extent, how safe does the public want to be? And how safe does the government think is acceptable for the public to be? Is there any effort to sort of standardize the response or or anything right now? Because, you know, it does seem like this is a universal problem. Are we set out as a country to really ad- address this? There's so much debate over Flint, for example. And yeah. I don't think there's any kind of one great ga- game plan for dealing with lead. I think you have to identify what are the, the most significant problems out there and then uh, target in on those. I mean, in the case of lead and drinking water, uh, EPA had issued uh, the lead and drinking water standards, which they're now looking to revise. And one of the aspects in the revision, I think, calls for more extensive uh, testing as opposed to just sampling of uh, lead that's present in homes and schools and so on. I mean, I think earlier on in this this year on, uh, or maybe it was late, late late last year, there was a we had a program that focused in part on the Greentown. Uh, Indiana uh, situation and in a high school there, and the the testing rules don't didn't apply to uh, to that. It was just you had a superintendent or principal that had decided to have the the water uh, tested. So I just I mean I, I think we periodically need to reassess you know how well things approaches that we've developed to deal with these problems are working and uh, fine-tune them and I think one of the real problems at the national level is while a lot of that happened between 70 and 90 that now the the 
partisan bickering and gridlock has meant that people aren't stepping up and, and making mid, what I'd call mid-course corrections that need to be made. It gets all into the uh, kind of partisan extremes, which isn't very uh, very helpful. Indra, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I view the Hoosier Environmental Council as a group that is out there trying to you know, protect Hoosiers um, from uh, ill effects of, of uh, degradation to the environment through, you know, legislative lobbying and basically awareness and education. So from, you know, and if, if I'm wrong, tell me, but if that's the case, from, from your standpoint, I mean, are there, you know, are there things that, that Indiana should be doing in this law on, um, you know, lead to protect Hoosiers from lead contamination? And, you know, if not led, you can, you know, I guess this is a time when you can give us a little bit of your agenda for the uh, 2017 legislative session. Oh, well, thank you for that introduction. Um, you accurately described the Hoosier Environmental Council. Um, in the legislative session, we're focused on um, environmental protection in the budget, um, also steps that will help move um, Indiana forward with public transportation and renewable energy. Um, and we're also uh, keeping an eye out uh, for bills that would impact uh, sustainable agriculture practices. Okay. And, and on, the, uh, on the issue of lead, which, you know, we've been talking about, are, are you aware of, you know, Hoosier um, laws or regulations, I guess, through the, it would be, I guess, IDEM, that protect um, you know, Indiana residents in terms of you know, lead in drinking water or lead in soils? Sure. Mm-hmm. So for drinking water, um, Indiana follows the, the federal standards um, for uh, you know, testing and taking care of lead if it's found in, in drinking water. Uh, when it comes to um, lead paint, um, there are the federal standards, but Indiana has also enacted um, our legislature has enacted some additional bills to help protect children from lead poisoning. If I, I could make a wish list to add something for our, our lead poisoning protection uh, in Indiana statute, it would just be protection for um, renters who have uh, you know, a rental property checked for lead um, to make sure that, that they can't be evicted by a retaliatory ev- eviction. Is this something where just people should just be tested for lead, even if you don't necessarily live near a site? Is that just a good precautionary measure people should be taking? No, uh, I, I wouldn't. Um, the, the measures that I'd recommend would be if uh, if your house is uh, was built in 1978 or, or earlier, don't do any renovations unless you test for lead and then have those renovations done in a safe manner. Um, uh, if you suspect there could be lead in the soil because of older housing or industries that have been on the land before, uh, you can leave your shoes at the door and keep dust wiped up with uh, damp damp dusting. Um, and then if you have plumbing that's old enough to have lead pipes, and that would be any plumbing is installed prior to 1986, um, running cold water for at least uh, one to two minutes before you use any of it for drinking or cooking can help flush the, um, any water that's been sitting long enough to pick up the lead out of the, out of the pipe. So if water has been standing for six hours or more, um, it's a good idea to run it for a couple minutes before using it for, for drinking water. 
So I guess, Nick, can you explain, if, you know, Flint, Michigan then, and why all of a sudden all of these people found out that they might be susceptible to, to lead poisoning? Because that doesn't seem, I mean, it was very different than East Chicago in that it was present in the environment. Yeah, so, yeah, what happened in Flint and what happened in East Chicago are uh, apples and oranges a little bit. You know, in Flint, uh, as far as I understand it, the problem really came when the city decided to switch water sources to switch to the Detroit River, whatever the river was in Flint. And, um, Right, Flint River. Flint River. Sorry, the Flint, the Flint, ha- having grown up in the late great city of Flint, it was the it's the, it's it was the Flint River. The Flint River. Sorry, but um, when when they switched that water source, the city didn't properly add corrosion inhibitors to the water, and it basically pressure blasted lead out of the lead infrastructure there, and uh, people got really really sick because of it. And then you know there was problems with public disclosure and yeah. cover-ups there, too. And actually, I mean, the issues in Flint, Michigan are not unique. Uh, I mean, there were, when I was living in Washington, D.C., there were, that was a bit, was a big uh, issue there in the 1980s and again in the, the 2000s. So I think any old city that's likely to have had uh, lead in the water distribution pipes or plumbing that was built a long time ago can have those uh, problems. But as Nick indicated in in Flint, the, the people took some uh, action that actually made the problem much worse. Than uh, instead of preventing the problems that that uh, might have occurred. If you have questions or comments for us today, eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So Nick Jansen is with us. He's down from uh, Fort Wayne, and he's the energy and environmental reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Nick, I asked Indra about her agenda at the, or the uh, Hoosier Environmental Council agenda up at the State House. Uh, what kinds of other environmental issues are you following closely right now? Yeah, so um, there are a few pieces of legislation related to aid for East Chicago that I'm following closely. Uh, in fact, one of them, a bill from uh, Representative Earl Harris Jr., who's from East Chicago, just passed the House yesterday. And that bill is really aimed at expanding soil and water testing in the, um, the affected neighborhood in the Superfund site. Uh, originally, the bill was going to expand that testing citywide. That got changed in committee, and a lot of residents have testified at the state house and have just spoken up and said they'd really like to see that change back to the way it was written originally to do that testing citywide. Um, Is that I'm, expensive? Just really quick, or why wouldn't you do it? It's it not cheap. Um, okay. I, I think I, the reason he said why is because he that Representative Harris said is because. We know for sure there's a problem in this area, and if anyone is going to get tested, we want to make sure it's these people who are definitely struggling with this issue first, even though I should say it's likely that you know there is contamination outside of the defined Superfund site because you know pollution doesn't stop at a city block it you know okay, yeah, go ahead with the other ones there yeah um. And yeah, there's other bills as well that we're following at Indiana Public Broadcasting. Uh, the solar bill, which went forward uh, earlier this week to change net metering. Um, there's stuff about agriculture and confined animal feeding operations that we're looking at. There, there's a lot. Yeah, I, I'd like to. I know this is not about lead, but I want to ask about the 
the uh, solar bill that that didn't make it out of committee this week. Or, it, it did oh, make it, it out of committee. Yes, because it has. Yeah. Okay. It was um, explain it, it, that. Yeah, explain that issue to us. Yeah, and uh, Indra can jump in and help me out on this too because I know the Hoosier Environmental Council has been watching this closely. But um, the bill was amended yesterday in committee and changed it a fair bit. Um, but basically, the bill they passed out of committee will. Um, sort of establish a tier system for how long people who either currently have or will have solar pa- uh, solar panels on their roof over the next five years receive what's called the retail rate for excess energy they generate. So when someone with solar panels generates energy, they use that energy in their home. And then if they're generating more energy than they can use, they sell that back to the utilities at the rate they purchase energy from the utilities. A lot of utility companies don't like that and would rather pay a lower rate or no rate at all for that energy. And so this bill um, by 2047, I think, would end the um, the retail rate for everybody and everyone would be reimbursed at a lower rate. Okay. And that's seen as a, a disincentive to putting solar panels on your house, correct? Yes. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. The the utilities would argue that when that energy is sent back across the grid, it can damage it and you know, they should basically homeowners should have to pay a fee to access the grid. Um you know, the the math can get kind of tricky and complicated there. Indra, you wanna weigh in on that? Yeah, in in fact the Hoosier Environmental Council uh is hoping that the Senate would instead send this issue to the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission um, because there there really needs to be a, an examination of all the details of the benefits of having solar and and the benefits that that provides to all of us and the benefits of maintaining you know the grid infrastructure and what all the costs are on both sides of that equation and and really the commission is in the, the best position to uh, dig through all of those details and figure out what would be fair. Um, we, we feel that the, there really isn't time during the legislative session, especially given all the bills that our legislators um, have to spend time on, there, there isn't time for them to really sift through those details to, to get it right. In, the, in its current state, I, I agree with Nick, this um, bill would discourage the solar industry in, in Indiana. And it's unfortunate because it's been a growing industry and there are a lot of jobs in it right now. And if I can just add one more thing real quick, there actually was an amendment proposed in committee yesterday that would do just that, that would send this matter to the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, and the chair did not take up a vote on that amendment. If we can circle back to lead here real quick, because I sure. know the governor is going to be speaking in East Chicago in a little over an hour here. Um, so, so what might we expect from that visit, and is this his first time there? Nick, Nick gives... Uh, I think he... Uh, Governor Holcomb might have gone last year as lieutenant governor, but okay. this will be his first trip as governor. Uh, you know, I think it was when he was campaigning, actually, that okay. he went up there. Um, but, you know, residents have been asking for nearly a year for any governor to go up. Uh, governor Pence did not go visit the area. Um, Holcomb today will be meeting with city officials discussing the emergency declaration he issued last week, and he'll be spending some time with affected residents. He's speaking with the media at uh, 2.30, I believe. So how is the emergency declaration going to work, or does it work with all these proposed pieces of legislation? 
Um, and how does it also then work in with local efforts? How are they all connected, or are they? The the declaration is largely separate from the legislative efforts that are going on. Um, you know, in addition to being aimed at helping effective residents move out, he directed a whole host of state agencies to work more closely with local and their local and federal counterparts. Um, I don't honestly know what that looks like at this point, and we've tried to get a little inform a little more information in the weeks since the declaration issued, and I think the bureaucracy is still kind of trying to sort out what exactly will happen. But um, you know, there's. The, it seems like there's been a lot of confusion in government in terms of the city, state, and federal agencies all working together and maybe talking past each other sometimes. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen the response proceed as slowly as it has. It's been difficult for the agencies to all kind of get in the same room and you know, come up with a plan and then execute an agreed upon plan. Jim, do you have to get some sort of federal disaster declaration before the EPA really gives a lot of resources to a community? Or how, do, how does no? What, well, I mean, the 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 most direct route for EPA expenditures would be to put a site on the super Superfund list, and then the EPA can use money out of the Superfund trust fund to uh, uh, clean up, move people out, provide alternative water supplies, things like like that, EPA also has the authority, even if it's not on the list, to go in and clean up more immediate kinds of, of situations, but that typically is used maybe when there's a spill. I mean, a truck with uh, hazardous materials turns over on on uh, going up toward Indianapolis and you get water that truck turns over, chemical spills into Bean Blossom Creek, so that you can, you, EPA can come in and clean uh, clean that up. I think for for the smaller uh, issues, that really turns to the the state. And I mean, the other the other thing that's lurking in the background here is that over time, there's been a, an effort, and I think understandably so, to try to have the proper the public the property owner uh, responsible cleanup. And I think I could, one can see that happening in the East Chicago case. That first EPA and the state were trying to get the property owners to to uh, clean it up, and, and that delayed things a long uh, uh, time. And when it didn't, then you've got to look to availability of public funds to do that. So now that the emergency declaration is issued, we might see more money being pushed to that area, potentially in the way of public funds to clean it up? Yeah, I think we might. I mean, I think one of the problems currently with the Superfund program is that, you know, when it was set up, it was a big pot of money that, you know, was created to fund cleanups. That's why it's called the super fund. And over time, that pot of money, as I understand it, is pretty much empty. And so now the EPA spends a lot of time negotiating with private parties to get the money to fund the cleanup. Yeah. I mean, initially it was funded uh, in large measure by a tax on, on chemical feedstocks and petroleum. And Congress let that expire, and then it fill, the, it puts money in out of the, the general appropriations each year. But those have been going down, and then to the extent EPA can recover money after it has cleaned up a, a site and go after people that were responsible and collect the money back, it can go there. But the but the amount of money in that fund is 
is not very large, and it, it, there's a lot of pressure then on what, what's the priority for using that money. But I guess to, to really answer your question, um, there was no sort of set amount of money in the emergency declaration that the governor said they were going to put towards East Chicago. And so how, I'm not sure how exactly the state will fund whatever activities it listed out in the declaration. We have about one minute to go. And uh, Andrew, I'm going to ask you this question. So there, there was a, a bill that uh, would say that no environmental protection is allowed to be implemented on the state or local level if it is more stringent than a federal rule. Um, and I, I just wonder, where, you know, where is that now? Was that bill passed last year and vetoed by the governor or and then yeah. the veto is overridden this week? Is that, is that what's happened? Yes. Um, although the so, um, we've actually uh, had bills like that year after year um, mm-hmm. uh, that we've had to deal with. And um, they would basically cede Indiana's authority to take care of its own environmental problems with its own solutions. So we've always fought them. Last year, that bill got amended to the point where, really, it just imposes some additional reporting and additional steps. Um, So it did pass. Uh, The governor vetoed it, and that veto has been overridden, so it will, I believe it will go into law. Um, Fortunately, it's um, not as uh, inhibitory as, as... uh, some versions of, of that bill have been. So it'll, it'll require some additional uh, reporting and steps if, uh, if we do want to have regulations that are more stringent than the federal. Okay. Thanks for that quick uh, evaluation of that. We're out of time. I want to thank you very much, Indra Frank, for joining us today, as well as Jim Barnes and Nick Jansen for producer Ryan DiBattista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.